Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hey, this is Kevin from Adulting Well Podcast, and I just wanted to thank everybody that listens um, sincerely uh, for all your support. Um, we are currently recording new guests, uh, and those will be up in the coming weeks in honor of Adam Fowler from Jawbreaker finally joining the show uh, after a couple of years of trying to get him on. Um, we're going to rerun the uh, Chris and Blake episodes over the next two weeks. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. They were really, really amazing personal interviews. And um, they were some of what I think is some of why we do what we do. So enjoy the episodes. Um, as always, uh, please donate to our Patreon account. We are giving our money over to uh, Hospitality House San Francisco through the end of the year. Um, or if you want to make a direct donation to them, hospitalityhousesf.org. Uh, again, they are an organization that helps individuals with um, mental health issues and who are trying to uh, um, cease using drugs uh, and get off the streets. Uh, really great organization here in San Francisco, and they especially need some help right now. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and enjoy these two shows, and we've got a lot of new content coming. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your host Joshua and I am joined as always with Kevin, your co-host. And we are really excited as always to have our guest today, Blake Schwarzenbach. And we're going to talk about a lot of amazing things like getting into punk rock, you know, what he's been up to, what he's doing now, what it's like to be an adult. So I'll let Josh kick it off. Oh God! This is this is the thing now. It is the thing. We have one question we use. I know, but I don't. Everything like... else, but it gets people rolling. It does, but it does it. It does. Okay, God, Chris. I, Chris got excited. I think it's man. been mixed results, but I kind of ask people like you know if you were someone who felt kind of on the outside as a child, or if you felt a little different, or either, when you found your people and how you found your people. Like for me, it was a very direct. Like in high school, I was kind of alone, and I and I saw this bench full of weirdos, and I co-opted the one of them to be my friend, and he brought me in, and and that's where I found like 
kind of uh, my people, I guess that, and some of them ended up being my friends forever. And like, uh, just how how you found uh, if punk rock's involved in that, like how you how you got there. Hmm. It took me a pretty long time to find my people because I um, I moved a lot as a kid. So whenever I would find my set, we would be moving again. Right. Uh, and then I would have to kind of start over and um, go through that, the agony of like, yeah. being new, introduced into a class that was already friends with one another. And that kid was like your best friend. Like every kid was your best friend probably, like in, the, in each place. And you had to yeah. like, break up with them and everything. Yeah. yeah. So I, I moved, yeah, I mean, I lived in, in Berkeley and in Colorado and Oregon Briefly in Nova Scotia. Um, Interesting. All before high school. So I, I share that with you. I mean, I'm, I spent most of my life starting about my senior year in high school until my mid-20s in Santa Rosa. And I was there before that. But we moved prim- primarily around Northern California. But when you're young, especially at that time, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it's like that's as far as moving across the country. So I had that same experience of like showing up to a new school, being the new guy, like, who am I going to connect with? Am I going to get into a fight with somebody? Like there was always like this like tension it felt like. I I was in a different school every year until, um, in a different place until, uh, until sophomore year. Yeah. So it was a similar kind of rolling around thing. Um, and I think that's why, like, maybe that speaks to you saying you, you start, you know, you find your people late, uh. Like it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until I was like 15 that I found my, my, my first life friend, you know? Well, I, I actually, and maybe this is your guys' experience too. I, I, and I'll ask this in a form of question. Did you find that like getting into alternative music kind of helped that when you got to new places? Like, cause there was always like, I felt like there was always like the freaks somewhere, right? I think getting into music period. Yeah. Cause when I got into music really heavily, for the first time would would have been Portland, Oregon in middle school. Okay. And uh, I kind of grazed the underground towards the end of it. Um, I was just fortunate enough to have a local record store that uh, had the Wipers and and, uh, Sado Nation. Those were the two local bands that they were pushing. So I bought those seven inches. But, But before that, my dad had a girlfriend who really liked great music, and she was always bringing home the cars and blondie and oh, that's right. kind of like popular right but on the edge. new music yeah. yeah and tom petty she just she just had totally. they she just knew great music and was always bringing it into the house yeah so my we were a pretty musical household in portland and well and also if i remember right we talked about this uh when we were when we were up there um you had it was like an interesting situation up there as far as your living situation because your your dad, if I remember right, and you can correct me with any of this, I'm I'm usually pretty good, but um, is it, it was an architect, yeah. And so you guys had like an interesting piece of property up there and kind of a the just the was like the Weasley house or like <laughs> well he can tell I don't remember the details I just know that there was like there was property involved and there was other close friends that lived there. Yeah, it was an interesting community. Uh, they were these were people that my dad met at Berkeley. He went to UC Berkeley in the mid '60s. With like Richard Alpert and uh, um, who, who became Ramdas and um, Timothy Leary, like that that era of of UC. That's Berkeley, right? Uh, I could have been that time. I mean, everyone seemed to be there. Yeah. Was, you know, the Panthers were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah, and my dad and mom. Uh, 
moved there to to have me and to get married and to to be married with child. But my dad entered Berkeley as an architecture student and then kind of dropped out with his best friend, partly in protest uh, and partly because I think he just didn't know what he wanted to do. And that group kind of ended up migrating up to Oregon because they bought a piece of old parkland in rural Oregon. It was actually like a theme park, a family picnic park. Was like like a miniature golf course and stuff? More like carousels and like kind of kind of industrial era rides, you know, yeah, hand cranked yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it was basically a a, a wreck by the when they bought it. It was there was, so there was kind of just old pieces of ride and uh amusement around. How old were you when you when you were living there? I, I was probably about eleven or twelve when oh, I moved must up have there. Been hella fun. And listening to the wipers at eleven and twelve? Pro- probably closer to thirteen. Okay. <laughs> you know, and when I say listening I, I got the seven inch and didn't know what to make of it. Right. Yeah. Like I would take advice from the, the weeklies that would say, I bought the Echo and the Bunnymen Crocodiles because they said it was the best album. Yeah. And then I didn't really listen to it because I didn't understand it. It took me a long time to understand them. I think I was probably closer to 18 when I was like, okay, these guys are awesome. And I had friends that were into them and I'm just, I just couldn't quite crack the code. Yeah, I was not developed enough <laughs> intellectually. That? Yeah, I, lo- I mean, I would go see Van Halen and the Kinks and Pat Benatar. Totally. Great concerts in Portland. Yeah, I would go oh, to whatever yeah. the stadium show was. Right. So that's more of the stuff I was. What? Who did you go to? Pat, who would take you to Pat Benatar? Did you? I went with my best friend Mike, and uh, he was a drummer, and I was just starting to learn drums. Oh, cool! And um, yeah, we were really excited about her because she was getting played on the radio. First album, I think, and Lover Boy opened. Wow! And uh, so we got to we got to go alone. I think my dad dropped us off and then picked us up afterwards. That's so cool. It sounds so fun. Lover Boy too. Good Canadian rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> well, Canadian rock and roll. In I the, saw uh, a video of the Lover Boy uh, that not very recently they played, like in the last like well last decade, and uh, the dude still has all the moves. He still has yeah. like every like I don't know like they had that video for uh, Turn Me Loose, and he has it, it, it's he has like I think he has a headband on, and yeah, he you, just has. You the, can't take the rock and roll out. No, of he's the like guy, all man. in. So that I mean that in and of itself. So I would assume that you said at that point your dad had a girlfriend up there. So your parents had split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom uh, moved to Nova Scotia. Okay, and. Um, I kind of had to decide whether I was going to go to Canada or stay on the West Coast. And Canada was such an unimaginable thing to me. Well, Nova Scotia, too. I mean, that's like way out. That's like outer Canada. Yes. And the Maritimes. Yes. <laughs> that is some distance, especially so, growing up out here. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't imagine it, and I just stayed. And, stayed and she west. stayed there since, right? She is is a full Canadian citizen now. Yes, I I met her briefly, and she's her and I exchange pleasantries on the social media from time uh-huh. to time. She's a she's a she now. There was there a reason she moved to Nova Scotia? Was there Buddhism? Something? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of her her path from a, a very young age. That and that's probably partly why my parents drifted apart because she really wanted to figure out who she was. Yeah. And that seemed that was the door, and my dad was much more of a architect. Right. Well, that's. I mean, it's it's also interesting. I, I, I mean, it, because a whole, a whole part of Buddhism is is letting go of the material stuff too, right? Like not being so attached. Um, 
Yeah, that's a, but that is a huge move. How old were they? Do you, I'm sorry. Go. Do you know how old they were when, when they had you? They were really young. I, I think my mom was 18 and my dad was 19. Yeah, I was going to say, because like, that sounds like a lot of... Well, I guess that never ends. Never mind. Discovery never ends. <laughs> like, you never stop Let's trying hope. to figure it out, I guess. Let's Could, hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I so, mean, I, I just... Actually, because that is weird to me, like... Or so interesting to me. As a kid, your mom, like, going, I want to figure out this Buddhism stuff. And I want to figure out, you know, nothingness or whatever she's trying to figure out. Like, could you process that at that age? Like, did you get it? I hated it. Okay. I thought because that was just something that was taking my mom away. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah, also yeah, taking yeah. her away in the household. Like, she would retreat right. and meditate. And to a kid who just wants to play and hang right. out. The idea of silence and like abstinence or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. abstinence from enjoyment. <laughs> yeah, you haven't learned. It's not that in you my don't need. Mind. This, yeah, it's like you hadn't learned that you don't need the stuff. You need to like have the stuff before you can like get rid of the stuff. Well, I think and too, it, like the. I mean, I know having kids and being around them. I mean, they need stimulus. Stimulus, like you got to have something going on you know i i mean not that they need to be entertained all the time but that that would be a difficult situation at like 10 or 6 or younger right yeah it was challenging i i felt like i spent a lot of my time alone yeah as a kid well and so, i was an only kid so oh okay there was no one else there wow i mean yeah so hmm. then I, I would assume i you know and i know that you um studied a lot as you got older, you were, you know, you've gotten a, uh, you, you've done a lot of, of school and taught. Um, is that when you got into reading and writing was when you were kind of left on your own or? Yeah, I think that's when all the creative, yeah. uh, auto didacticism began, Starts, you know, drawing, yep. um, reading certainly. I mean, reading was something that I did with my parents, you know, we were big into Tintin and picture books, um, yeah. pick your, pick your series. Yeah, but sure. Yeah, My Father's think, Dragon was a big one in our house. I feel like that that's come up. We've only had a few shows, five shows, but I feel like it comes up a lot, the, like, being alone and that leading to books and creativity and just figuring out how to entertain yourself in some way and a, a type of person almost, you know. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So, I mean, talk a little bit about some of the other places you live because, I mean, it, it is interesting, too. Like, you lived in Nova Scotia for a while, then you came back out to the West Coast, lived in Los Angeles, and obviously these moves were prompted by something in either in you or your parents to move in these different into these different um parts of the country and the world really yeah i mean we were more like siblings in a strange way who were right. restless you know and so my father was kind of moving he got into school for architecture at Arc in santa monica okay and that prompted our move from portland to los angeles he wanted to get his He'd been doing carpentry and, you know, drafting, but at right. a kind of carpenter's level. Right. Uh, he, he and his buddy rehabbed and restored old houses up in Oregon, and then he wanted to get certified and got into this pretty hot postmodern kind of academy. Yeah. Uh, where a lot of the maverick architects were practicing. That's at the awesome. Time. So I started ninth grade in L.A. Okay. When he, as he started school, basically. And you went to, was that your first year of high school? Yeah. Then? Okay, and you went to a, a, a unique school as well, on top of, you know, this kind of unique upbringing. I did. I went to Crossroads Preparatory School for the Arts and Sciences. Yeah. So, and which, Where my grandmother taught AP English. That's how I found out about it. Wow. Was she, in, 
She wasn't teaching then, or she still was? She was, yeah. Wow. I, I couldn't take her courses because there was a conflict of interest. Yes, yes. <laughs> but she yes. did a guest lecture on the dead one day on Joyce, and it blew my mind. I had a whole new on, respect for her. On the dead, like... The, the story from Dubliners. Wow. That's she incredible. She just came into our, our class and, and just did a talk for one, that's one period. It sounds like you came from a musical house, but also a very supportive house of art in general. Very much so, Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah, they really, I mean, certainly my dad is always um, kind of visually, aesthetically oriented, and drew and um, encouraged drawing. Sure. Yeah. And when they, they didn't know anything about music. So when I started playing music, I think they just thought it was fascinating. You know, this alien sure. form that had entered the house. Right. Well, you, and you drew a lot then too, though. I mean, that, I was, did. that was a huge part of your, your like artistic expression. You still paint. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'd say I draw more than I paint right now, but uh, and but I, to me, it's all the same. I mean, visual art is yeah, just the media. The well, it's it's funny the because media I is different. You know, there's a reference to um, or you reference uh, your sticker making in you know in 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 the film. Um, but I, I was really I kind of wanted to drill down on that because I found it so interesting because I like I've done a few shirts just random thoughts that have come to my mind and I obviously have the you know the forum with which to do whatever I want which is nice but um I think this st- the sticker idea for me is just it's like both in the fact that it's it's kind of guerrilla art in a way because you're out there doing urban you're sticking it on things especially living in New York there's a lot of places to put things but how did that how did that come about is like a, a way for you to express yourself because I, I I mean I quite honestly I, I was re- it was really it interested me I mean it just kind of caught my attention hmm. I think it came about because I felt helpless to be I was not in dialogue with my city at all right although I was teaching at that time up at Hunter College and was doing my own coursework um, for a master's in literature okay and we were reading a lot of political philosophy and uh, kind of theory more than anything. So I was like deep into, um, I guess, Althusser and and kind of Marxist feminist criticism, um, which inevitably is historical and political. Yeah. And, and I was being engaged with that just as the Iraq War was getting going. Yeah. Was just getting cooking. Yeah, post nine eleven, you know, uh, so it was a pretty hot moment. Yeah, in especially in New York City, and there was no kind of public reaction other than some huge protests. Right. It felt like it was also business as usual around the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I even was, at school, you know, well, my students couldn't really be bothered. I was there during the Republican National Convention, which was really close in time, and I remember thinking to myself like. I would have expected more sort of public displays of protests not involved in the actual like protests of the convention itself, um, and there there just there re- actually really wasn't that much of it going on. And I, for New York, I just felt like because New York was the like the center point of the the attack on nine eleven, that in some ways there was some complacency around like okay, this is what needs to happen next, and maybe even like almost like revenge thinking. You know, like, we got to get somebody for this. You know, sure. it, it just, yeah. it was really, like, the protests were super contentious. Like, yeah, I met yeah, a yeah. few friends, and it yeah. was, I was a little scared, quite honestly, because the cops were not messing around. No, so, I was at that one, too. Yeah. I think that, strangely enough, was my first critical mass. 
Oh yeah. And we just rode in on the RNC right. raid up in yeah. town and then ended up in the in the East Village where they kind of kettled everyone. Yep. And I somehow managed to slip onto the sidewalk with my little bike and drift just, away. Yeah. Good for it was you. Fortunate, yeah. I was lucky. I was there. in Portland, and you know, the, you know, there was like George Bush gave them a deadline. There was that lead up to to the to the actual like war starting, the actual like, and um, there were the pro. It was my first big protest, but that I remember like later the next day or the following day, us all in our house with a little TV, like watch, you watched it, like you watched the wars happening, you yeah. know, and it was just like quiet, and I think that stayed quiet. I think as to what you guys are saying, it was like this, this business as usual after that. It was just like, well, this is fucked, you know? Like, well, it was it was such an interesting... I mean, whatever. You know, we could we could talk about yeah, the Iraq yeah, war yeah. forever and what, what it means, but I just think there was a, 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 lar- a large part of the population, including people that I would have considered um, at least sort of left-leaning that were okay with it, you know? And it just felt to me like very, you know... I mean, if you were paying attention, you knew it was bullshit, but it was like... It just felt really the whole thing just felt like like a giant disingenuous move by our country. You yeah, know? I mean that's and that's really it was like almost like took your wind out of you. You know, like it was just like fuck. Oh, Seems so like <laughs> thinking back now though, it's like uh, the wind is long gone. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. the wind is like, but I mean I don't want to say that because it's not long gone. It's yeah. fucking not. But like it feels like it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think there was a level of cynicism in that moment that we forget now because that seems to be the new norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it really was happening then with with those hearings just before the war. It, people were, who were paying attention, as you say, knew that it, would, it suddenly appeared to be preordained. Yep. And we were just going through this kind of theater yeah. to appease liberals. Well, that and they that, could say, well, we, we got to raise our hand in protest, but we all knew we were going. Yeah. And that, I think that's the, the, the thing that's most interesting is how many times that's played out since where it's so obvious that they're just going through the motions. They've already made a decision. This is what's going to happen. Protest all you want. I think the most recent obvious, you know, sort of example of that was the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, that was a wrap before before, you know, all of the testimony, the Republicans knew what they were going to do. And, and, you know, and, shutting down the airports work, though. Yeah. 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 For a short time. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But yeah, I... Uh, so that's that's why I started making stickers. Yeah. And I actually started making fuck the troops stickers, and I would put them on SUVs. <laughs> a little, like, ribbon. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and then my, my friend Dave said, uh, he, he said, oh, you should do I support our white troops, <laughs> oh. which I thought was so brilliant. Yeah. And um, I think I took his idea and made some of those, too. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it was kind of pranksterism, but it was totally. it was just to let myself feel like I was doing anything in that moment sure, when yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. felt really powerless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, self-expression, right? Like getting it out a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, I, I've definitely had lots of moments in my life where I felt pent up and like, what can I do? What can I do? You know, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to get started. You know, you just get, get, get like, I feel like I'm like getting into drive at times is like difficult. Um, but I, I, I found that so interesting because I've often talked to, you know, given the amount of screen printing I've done over the years and the, the other things, you know, as far as this particular form of, you know, art slash production, like buying huge screens and just going old school and doing like, you know, paper paste, newsprint paste posters and just putting them up, you yeah. know, 
like getting a bunch of friends together and going and decorating the city, this fair city of ours. Well, I wish I had your know-how and means because yeah. I would do these alone with like a little ADPI printer <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and there was also kind of a street policy of just ripping down anyone else's stuff. Right. So right. often I would put up stickers and they'd be gone within an hour. Yeah. Not because people objected to the content. There was a turf thing. Right. Like you don't put stickers at Bergen Street or yeah. Oh man, these that's mine. These don't belong here. So, so it was t- very uh, ephemeral. Yeah. Not you know, not to jump timeline. We obviously jumped way ahead, but I mean, I think it's interesting because you were talking about that you were teaching at the time, um, working on your master's degree, um, and you know, you got involved in academia after high school. Um, and, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this the other day, kind of joking around, but the, like, I, I kind of, I have a couple of friends that are teaching that are, you know, professors at different tenured professors at different schools. And I find it so interesting that people that are so far away from the normal sort of like, I guess I would say like jockey sports, like, you know, competition are so goddamn competitive. Like it is so competitive and I mean, it's brutal. Because of why? Because of limited positions available? I think Blake can speak to this more than I can. He was involved in it. I'm, I'm just, this is just an outsider's point of view. So, hmm. Well, I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was not competitive, right? which is why I'm not in that field anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a couple great friends who, who are also pointedly non-competitive because that's their, their politics provi- right. prohibit them from being competitive. And they managed to stay in and and persevere. I, I wouldn't say they were where they could be had they been a little more cutthroat. Right. And I, they seem eternally crushed to me in some way from being in that mayu. Right. You know, having to... Uh, like that public defender kind of crushed where they're just... <sighs> yeah. Yeah. But it, almost worse because it's this kind of... Because of the pretense that academic academics makes towards virtue and um oh and that being at odds with disinterested the... sure. intellectual rigor sure, sure, in sure. fact it's just another industry where people yeah. elbow each other out of the way and steal ideas and you know i don't want to paint it all with that brush there's no amazing work that comes out of it but i think if you if you live in it it's it's as bad as the music scene to use another example yeah. <laughs> you know where people think it's very utopian wow it must be so great just to Get paid for your ideas and your art. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, the ideas and the art are great, but the, the getting paid part yeah. Yeah. is where everything starts to get sticky. Well, yeah, people yeah, <laughs> people take things that aren't theirs, and they, uh, they sell them, and they don't often pay the artist. You know, and that's an unfortunate fact of most art forms. And it's been specifically uh, sort of like pointed out in the music scene over the years that it's extremely cutthroat and brutal. You know, um, so talk a little bit about getting into music yourself. You you touched on it, learning how to play guitar and yeah. I mean, well, and... I I started playing drums in in Portland and uh, took some lessons and then I I moved to L.A. and I had my drums set up. And then I moved in the summer right before school started, so I was new to Venice, California, where mm-hmm. we rented a small house, and I had my drums set up and I was playing and this really wild kid walked into my bedroom yeah. and I, who just I off know. the street. Yeah. Some just random like guy. the door open, which, and if you play drums, you know, it's a little alarming to like, right. Yeah. You don't know what's going on around you necessarily. And I turned and there was this kind of feral child, <laughs> like 
eyeing me, and it uh, was my neighbor, Brendan, who said, wow, cool, man, I play drums too, you should come over. So I went to his house, and he sat down and just blew my mind, like he was in a totally gifted drummer. Mm. Right. So immediately I realized I need to learn a new, inst- I need to get on a string <laughs> instrument, because there can only be one drummer. Yeah. There, there, and, yeah. So that moved me towards the bass. Nice. And I kind of like inched my way around till yeah. I got to, I won't say up, because I don't think guitar is superior to any other instrument. But that's where I ended up at guitar after going through everything else, yeah. basically. You think bass is, though, at first. Like, it's it's more accessible to start, I think. Yeah. Probably. I don't know. It was for me. I mean, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. Um, I think to be the, the like, that guy, <laughs> and by guy, I mean guy or girl, like that person in the band that just plays bass, yeah. is pretty easy. Yeah. And people get drafted into that position all the time. Look, yeah. just put your fingers where I point to. Yeah, yeah. Right. But to be a bass player, yeah, yeah, yeah. you learn later, is one of the most outrageous things. Yeah. Like a really artful bass player is... Yeah. And they're hard to find. Deep. Yeah. Very yeah. hard to beat. So, um, learned how to play guitar, and then... But you also play... You play other instruments. You play piano. Later. Yeah. yeah after Jawbreaker, I kind of got into keyboards. Nice. Or do you still do that at home? Is that a? I, I wish I did it more. I, I in Jets to Brazil, I really had to become adept. Yeah. Just to, and I'm not good. Oh but, yeah, because well, you okay. had like the setup with the keyboard on the side and then the guitar, and you had to switch. Yeah, oh, yeah I would yeah. sit down for a big part of our set and play piano songs, and and I that to me was the coolest thing that I had ever done. Right. Fans didn't care like. A lot of them did, didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't care because it was finally I was getting to do a new thing. And I love Randy Newman like, oh, yeah, growing yeah. up. Yeah. Sail Away was <laughs> yeah, just like yeah, a yeah. household record. Yeah. Awesome. He writes like these perfect like pop songs. Perfect. Perfect. Political yeah. Yeah. pop yeah. songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's no joke. So that, that to me, like I, that's what I would channel when I would sit down. I even would wear like a corduroy coat sometimes, or you know, I needed that affectation to go like I'm going to deliver some political satire. Nice, here. nice. Yeah, I think definitely Randy Newman. You know, obviously he had tons of hits and he wrote songs for other people, but like many ways, way underrated. You know, like as far as just his full, the full, the full effect of what he was doing. He had anti hits too. Like he, oh, yeah, he had totally. songs that weren't catchy at all. That were just like yeah. yeah. But I think he did that on purpose because he was that good a songwriter. Like he could pretty much do what he wanted. Yeah, know? but he was shrewd that way. Yeah. I think he figured out that he could do the Disney songs to totally. underwrite Faust, yeah. Yeah. the metal opera. <laughs> exactly. And here's an interesting there anecdote. You go. <laughs> so when Jawbreaker was mixing Dear You, mm-hmm. we were in um, at this mixing factory in LA, very high tech. Yes. Exclusive place with three other, there was three units, three little apartments where you, studios, suites, they call them. Suites. Nice. And in, in the business. That's it the... was Jawbreaker, Randy Newman, mixing Faust, and the family, the grieving family of Selena. Oh, who shit. Who had just been killed. Oh, Mixing geez. her final album. Oh, man. So it was such a bizarre yeah. confluence of people and there was a common area that was the kitchen, and it was always the grieving family would be in there right. heating up some baked goods. or. And you were just going to get a cup of coffee? We stayed out of there mostly. Out <laughs> yeah. of I was going to ask, do you, did you do to him what fans do to you? <laughs> or did you keep your distance? Well, and Randy was on his own thing, but Adam knew him from high school because his kid was a punk rocker. Oh. And they hung out. So one day I came back from 
getting food, and Adam and Randy Newman were shooting baskets in the oh, parking God. lot. And I was so in- intimidated by him yeah. that I didn't go say hi. Yeah. Oh, man. But that's I, a good instinct. That, that, enough was, that was enough for me, that image of my drummer and Randy Newman. Yeah, that's a pretty good image. Playing hoops. I think uh, it's funny that you mentioned the fans, like, not being necessarily that into the piano playing. I, on a you know, on just a personal level, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I thought it was actually like a very natural progression from the previous work you had done uh, musically. And, and I, I'm a sucker for piano anyway. My, my daughter's learning piano and harp right now, and I'm so happy about it. Like, I just want to like sit and listen to her. It's just such a beautiful instrument. I mean, it really is. Like, it's just so, and it's so powerful, you know? It's mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, because it it has that percussive side to it as well. Totally. And that's the part I don't have. Yeah. Like my left hand is useless oh. that way. Um, I'm good at doing like kind of Harry Nelson block, what they called block chords. Right. Sure. I can just club it, club it out. Right. And that's all I need, want, you know, wanted it for. Yeah. Uh, well, you had a bass player too. So kind of. I, I mean, Jets were a great band of musicians like yeah. Yeah. especially yeah. jeremy i think was a really gifted player yeah. talk about real bass players so Holy he crap. would crap yeah. you know he would make the stuff that i did sound a lot more artful kind of compliment well, it quite honestly chris is one of my favorite drummers i love i love texas is the reason absolutely love that band and i went and saw them when they were on their reunion tour oh cool out here and just was you know not just a little bit blown away by his playing still is just so it's just so like there like i don't even know how to describe it because he's such a unique player you know mm-hmm. he's just a really really has a you know and there's a lot of drummers out there as well and i've played drums a really long time and there's certain people that just have a really special touch and he's got that like unique style that's his um so it was fun to see him play again. i'm glad you enjoyed that so much like makes me like it sh- shifts that whole like it, it adds something to that to me like the times i saw you guys uh, yeah, knowing how much you enjoyed that, and yeah. then yeah, oh, the yeah. playing piano, yeah, playing piano, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Well, that we, a... I think there was a misperception that we were slightly persecuted for not being our former bands, and that we suffered uh. from that mm-hmm. because when we started, there was pushback about like this is definitely not Jawbreaker, and it's not Texas is the reason, and it's not Iceburn or whatever. No, <laughs> no. When Orange Army Dictionary came out, my friend Dave and I like huddled around a little cassette recorder, and it was decidedly not jawbreaker and i was like i don't know about this you know for fucking two seconds but like yeah i'm i'm yeah. A, you see your art if that's the narrative your art didn't reflect that at all well no we did exactly what we wanted yeah but i think there was there was people may have thought that we were we suffered or we were miserable because we did fight it a bit but but that band was really fun that band was That's really the thing good. that no one knows, like, is we had so much fun, especially making that first record. Well, I think yeah. that's a little... Because we were all learning. Yeah. It was, it was us playing way out of our depth, like, uh, well, doing things that we'd never done before. I, I, personally, I like the records, all of them. I, I just, I think it's really good music, and I find the playing on it to be, as I've said already about Chris, I mean, the playing on it is exceptional. Your lead guitar player was amazing. I, I just thought it was a, a really good group of people to be playing together. You guys complimented each other. I really gotta well. take it down a notch. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I would. I, that's just my personal. No, opinion. but my like, I can, I, this is a hard episode for me for like a dual reasons, right? right. Like as a fan, it's hard because I'm like, this not this is not time for that. And then, well, but we're not we're not gonna we're not doing the whole like 
Let's just talk about Jawbreaker. No, I know. It's just that I get excited. Is all. Yeah. And then the other thing is this: the 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 band is very closely tied to some issues I've had. Oh yeah. Around drinking, coincidental, not not the, the band's fault, but like around like big events in my life, and right. those things come back too. So like you're talking about like some people didn't like it when you played piano. Like I have really horrible memories of being drunk and like. Like saying like ah, oh, get back on the guitar. Like dumb, horrible. Like I want to cry thinking about them. Like <laughs> ruining the, the everything around me because of my own drunken selfish yeah. shit. And well. it's just like it comes up, and I'm like, fuck, man. You know, like anyway, I'm gonna take it down ten take notches. Take it down a notch. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think we got into this uh, musical band area just because it was about we were talking about growth and like yeah, yeah. going and outside of your. Your well, comfort. I think yeah, that's, also that's kind of why I think of that. The kind of the last comment you made too about the like, well, not the last one, but when you were talking about people thinking you guys were suffering and all this, I think that that is a little bit of a misnomer about you personally. Like that, there's this like, sort of like this persona of like, you know, kind of you know, maybe sadness or whatever it is that you know it, it and that also gets mentioned in the film but you brought it up a, a little more pointedly around just to brazil right now which i on a personal level haven't really found that to be true like i get the sort of the the outside persona but i mean you know i, I think it's interesting too what people think versus what reality is and you know like you know, everybody's got different sides of them, but I, I've I've found like not so much of the darkness and the just the like the lighthearted sort of like having fun with all of this at this point because we're adults now and like what else is there to do? You know, like well, does it have to be black and white? I mean, no, like you're a person, like you probably no, all I'm, those I'm not. Things are... I'm also not trying to paint this as like right. haha, funny joke joke land. Like right. no, but it's it's just interesting that people kind of like assume something and that's what they go with. You know, like. Oh, Jester Brazil must have been really sad because they weren't Jawbreaker or Texas is the reason. You know what I mean? Which, uh, that wasn't my experience listening to your records. Yeah, or that you are your yeah, songs. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, that's all, and that's all you are. Yeah. But you address that in the songs, right? Like, don't you have a song where you specifically are like, hey, like, this is a song and you're a little too attached to it. Uh, uh, or am I wrong about that? No, I feel like I was always trying to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I wasn't trying to be the song. Right. Entirely. Like, I mean, because I think the best songs actually are you. And, yeah. you know, people, when they sense that, that's authentic. And they're like, wow, oh. this is actually like the truth about this person. Right, their right, their right. story in some way. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's a way of writing that, that sort of draws people in. You know, when you can connect a certain sort of experience or a story or a feeling in a way. And all, in my opinion, of course, this is again my opinion, all the great writers do that in one form or another. They draw you in in a way that connects whether whether it's something you like about yourself or something you don't. Sometimes I'm more drawn to stories where it's sort of, I dimly perceive that evil in myself. Like, oh, I'm kind of like that. Like, I find stories that are darker at times very, very, like, sort of attractive, you know? And then there's other times where I want to read lighthearted, you know, like, my wife is reading the Emily Flake book right now, and it's like, there's stuff in it that's, like, so true that it's funny. You know, and it just like show, she's been laughing out loud in bed, like just like and then showing me like a cartoon, you know, and there, you know, I think that, that good writers um, allow you to emote, you know, in whatever way it is. So, you know, the connection is is a is a positive thing. With well, I think yeah. it's that thing of I was talking to my coworker about this because 
we were talking about this. I was going to do this interview later. Mm -hmm. We we're talking about lyrics and stuff. And I think it's just like that thing of like, oh, that's 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 how this feels. Like, right. like when you're especially when you're younger and you're, you have these like very like emotional breakups that are kind of shallow but very wide. And like you hear a song and you go, that's exactly how I feel. Or actually, not even like any situation, but right. like you hear a song and you go, like that's that's what I mean. And then you give it to your friend. And you're like, this this is how I feel. Or you <laughs> give it to the girl and go, this is how I feel. Yeah. Famous. I don't know if there's a question in there. Well, I, I so you, we kind of left off talking. We got into creative, but um, we were talking a little bit about academia, and you you basically left. I did. I I basically fled. Yeah, yeah. I didn't just leave. I failed. Oh, you failed. Oh, no. okay. Well, I did. Do you mind talking about what happened, or are you? Uh, I'll talk about some of it. Okay. There's some of it I I don't know if I want to get into yet. Totally fine. Because I'm sure. not sure if I'm gonna end up writing about it or just never talking about it again. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I would say that I would be willing to say that I was hospitalized mm -hmm. during my second attempt at a PhD mm. and had to withdraw right. from, I had a fellowship and uh, it was just impossible for me to continue. Yeah. Mm. So they, they were, they, the, the school was very generous in trying to extend me every courtesy to get my sh shit together yeah. and come back. And the sad part, the painful part for me was I did come back and I completely failed again. Mm -hmm. Like I just folded like a cheap card table. Mm. Yeah. And it, it ultimately it was great because I, I realized it wasn't work that I wanted to do anymore. Mm -hmm. I had had my academic moment when I did my MA and I, I, you know, was really good at it and succeeded in my department and was, um, it was the greatest thing I ever did for myself. Yeah. It was about a four year program the way I, I did it slowly, mm -hmm. but getting the master's was great. Five years later, trying to do a PhD was not work I wanted to do anymore. And I, I kept convincing myself it was because it seemed legit. Mm -hmm. right. and like I might become a doctor and I would be forgiven by my family. <laughs> Interesting. And mm -hmm. then as I did try to do the work, I, I'm, I think I'm the kind of person I've learned that I can't do work I don't like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At, after a certain age. When you're younger, I, I did a lot of labor jobs, and I could do that because it was just like yeah. they give you a shovel and go empty that. Sure. Right. And you could pay your earth. Rent. Yeah, and <laughs> get paid at the, at the end of the week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now I, I, I hit a point where I just couldn't, and I had too much uh, unaddressed stuff in my mind right. that uh, was... What I, I mean, to get out. I think it's fair to say that all three of us have had that moment in our lives. I know that I certainly have, and it it inspired me to do what I'm doing now, which is to hire people that have had, you know, a rough go at it, quite honestly, and that are that are difficult to hire and difficult to, or they have difficulty finding jobs because of their history, and um, you know, I can attribute some of my sort of drive in this social enterprise that I've, I've been sort of you know, fortunate enough to be involved in as, you know, kind of the opportunity for me to give back too. And it's the one thing that I will say, honestly, has kept me here because there's a lot of days where I walk into this place and I'm like, do I want to deal with a pissed off customer? And then I have to roll it back and be like, well, actually, but I'm not dealing with a pissed off customer because like, that's what I like to do. I'm dealing with a pissed off customer because I want to employ more people that need jobs and that normally would not be able to afford to live in a city as expensive as San Francisco. So, you know, 
How did right. you? Uh, so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you? You're here, yeah. You know, and and you stopped doing that. And it sounds like, um, you got uh, emotionally back on your feet. I guess uh, at some point, um, is that fair? I mean, do you feel better? I do. I feel a lot better. Okay, I mean, I've had a a little over two years of sobriety now. Oh wow! And congratulations. That's not easy. Thanks. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it was the first time in my life since high yeah. school that I was not, that I don't, didn't drink are you in at, some capacity. Are you at a point where, does that feel like a good choice? Does you feel good? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. That's the best thing. Yeah. I, I can't say I wish I had thought of it sooner, but I can't imagine I would have done it sooner. No. Like, no. It was just, it wasn't in my thinking at all. I was yeah. like, I can't imagine not drinking. That's what I, that's yeah. what I do. In that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then I got to a point where I was like, I couldn't imagine drinking yeah, anymore. Right. I I drank everything, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I was just like grossed out. So yeah, since then, I mean, I I feel like I can, I have that. I'm not in the program. I don't do that stuff. Sure, I've, I have in the past, but it's not really how I did it. Yeah, but uh, I definitely feel the thing that people say of like, I can't believe how much has gone right since in the years since I stopped. It happens quick, right? It, I mean, not when you're starting. It seems like forever. Yes. But then a year later, you're yes. like, holy shit. Like, I'm actually out of debt. Yeah. My family talks to me yeah. and likes me. Yeah. I'm, yeah. You know, not I'm a viable my, person. Not put yeah. myself in danger. Yeah. It's one of those things that's yeah. real. On a regular basis. It, like, happens and it's real. I think that's fucking great. I noticed, like, my... <laughs> you know, drinking's kind of its own activity, right? Like, if I'm sitting on a chair, I'm meditating or I'm not doing anything. But if I have a beer in my hand, I'm hanging out. Like, I'm drinking. And I just found, like, after I got past the first three or six months, when it got a little easier, that I just had, like, time. Like, time that I didn't have before to do stuff. Yeah. Um, which at first I think is really hard, um, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. How to yeah. fill that time? Yeah, it's and, nice. And how to how to not fill that time? I think this kind of gets towards meditation too, which I don't do, but I have. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying I like I'm so good I don't have to meditate. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a great meditator by any means. When you yeah. do it, does it help? It, it does in the same. It helps with this idea that yeah. like learning how to not do anything is is a huge. Um, talent that's my whole theory about aa like i go to this meeting once a week uh and i and it relieves some kind of pressure if i don't go for two weeks i have this pressure and i think maybe it's like tied into just i'm in a room for an hour i'm a little uncomfortable for the first 20 minutes because i have some anxiety (laughs) and uh but i have to look for i can't have my phone out you know like i have to and we do have a meditation too as part of that but it's just like there's something about sitting there for an hour i think that is part of why i feel good when i leave uh learning to sit yeah is hard it, I, for me. I mean i i'm shit i'm gonna have 20 years sober in november and i will say that i still struggle with the not trying to fill my days all the time you know start to finish like it's difficult at times even now to just sit i mean i have to be reminded at home don't pull your computer out. You don't need to work, you know, like it's, you know, there's just a, and also I've always, and I feel like this is the case for a lot of, I, we've talked about this in episode after episode. Like there's this like almost like workaholic work ethic amongst people that sort of like artists and, you know, like you just want to create and do things. Right. I mean, get in the fucking zone and you're not drinking water or eating. Yeah. 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 
And health wise, how, I mean, obviously, you know, you seem like you're, you're, you look healthy. You seem. I'm in pretty great health. Yeah. I mean, I, when we got riot fest when we booked that and when we said yes to that, yes, I was in horrible shape. Like I had just gotten out of jail. Oh, oh, jeez. Um, Sorry, man. And I was... I've made that trip a few times. So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I empathize with that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> On probation, overweight, drinking. Well, I was sober when we... Agree- I didn't agree to do it till I was had stopped drinking. Right. And knew that I could not drink. Right. Yeah. Because I didn't want to... You know, I wouldn't subject my bandmates or, or <laughs> the good people. But you were still in your drinking shape. I was in my... I had my drinking body and... Yeah, and I... So the first thing i did was started exercising right and it was great to have that target because i was like i'm going to be in front of a lot of people who are expecting something and i owe it to them <laughs> to, to look somewhat presentable turn totally. me loose you know totally. so that just motivated me to start riding my bike every day and nice oh, that's great and then after and i didn't, i can't say i hit my target weight by any means i was pretty chunky on stage <laughs> but then when after that i joined the the y Nice. And the why became like my thing to do every morning. So now, I, for the last year, I've been basically going to the why as much as I can. Yeah. And uh, sweet results. So that, that, and that There's really... been results. I mean, I you know, I'm I. No one can see you on this podcast, obviously, but you look great. Thanks. Like, no <laughs> what joke. is this show? We're, now we're. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like, it's, <laughs> I know, but it's it's hard. It's hard when you get to be you get out there and hit and... the gym. Yeah, it's hard when you get to be our age to oh stay my, in shape. Yeah, Jesus, the months. stomach would not go for I can, the first I can nine barely, months. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was doing heavy stomach exercises yeah. and nothing would budge. No. But you have momentum right now, and I think that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like 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 you know, when I'm not running it's that fucking wall of like getting up. But if I run in the morning or if I meditate, like it's noticeably better. Like my whole day is yeah. better. Like I don't know and but then I don't yeah. do it every day, so there's a great um, uh, Andrew Solomon's book, the, the Noonday Demon. I don't know if you ever. I haven't. Uh, I would not but... recommend it because it's so harrowing. <laughs> it, it, it's an account of um, depression that that really rocked the uh, kind of psychiatric world years back when he published it. I think that an excerpt was published in the New Yorker, and I had friends calling me like saying, "Yeah, have you read this?" Oh no! And because um, it's so devastating, uh, what kind of what he went through, and well, depression's devastating. Yes, yeah, for sure. It and he somehow managed to convey the terror of it. Yeah, oh, I'd love in to a way that, that. Yeah. There, it's worth. It's certainly worth having in the house yeah. as a reference. Momentum's an interesting topic because I feel like, to me, <laughs> this is, I guess everything's up to interpretation. But for me, I feel like Jawbreaker was a lot to me felt like about momentum and it felt like about like a lot of it, the lyrics and just like the work ethic of the band itself felt like momentum. It felt like, Hey, like keep going, like do stuff and keep going and go do things. Uh, I got that message somewhere in there. That, that was to ourselves, I think, because we were climbing out of nothingness. Yeah. Okay. Coming from LA, like starting in LA where it seemed so hopeless, like the landscape was unencouraging the band scene you mean the worst probably the worst time frame in los angeles music that you guys started yeah. playing shows down there i mean it was well, there horrible. was nothing there was nowhere to play and there was nothing that sounded like what music we liked or what we were yeah, trying to sure. do so hence gilman street was like this huge 
opening for us when we came up and there were people who had listened to our tape. Yeah. That or must who, have been or who liked our yeah. or just liked our band like wow, this is cool. I, we like you guys. That was the weirdo bench I yeah. spoke of in the yeah. beginning, you know, almost like, oh, you're welcome here, step right in, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We met people who we know to this day who were just, well, you know, part of that. A few of them were there last group. night. Yeah, and they they got taunted a little bit. <laughs> Walter got his a little bit last night. Right. So Adam does not hold back. <laughs> but I think yeah, the momentum was was like. It was a it was survival for us. Yeah, uh, to keep. I mean, they were kind of like it's kind of like whipping. You're the horse, and you're whipping your totally. ass. Sure, sure. Totally. Keep going, get it, driving northward to escape Los Angeles or escape whatever the. Yeah, it's admirable. Uh, we had a chance to talk to Chris a little bit about that too, and it's just like just thinking about like being that young and having so any kind of work ethic around anything is impressive to me. People who. Are, uh, Academics at that age who have a work ethic. Anybody who's really like, has, I just think I did not have a work ethic at that age, and I just admire people who did. I guess. Yeah, I think it's Freud's model of sublimation always comes to mind for me. You're gonna have to refresh my memory. Well, as I understand it, I mean the way I use it is that uh, you convert um, forbid- a forbidden drive or desire into something that's socially acceptable. Right. So if you were, you know, hopelessly horny and desperate for sexual contact, you might become really good at sewing. Or okay. you might become an expert, you know, um, drawer or something. And I'm not saying it was a sexual drive, but a terror that was in me, and I think my bandmate shared a little bit, that made us, gave us this compulsion to, like, figure out, our, make our band tighter and, like, yeah, better. Not that we weren't workaholics. I, w- I won't say that. I think it was a more of a compulsion, sure. and we we did it very intensely. Well, even just moving together, like it seems like you you moved the band places at that age, and like that that is very rare. Like what bands at that age like move together? You know? I actually think you know not to this isn't a correction, <laughs> but I think Gilman actually brought that a lot more than other places in the country because like mm. Econocrist came out here from Arkansas. Yeah. There were a lot of Arkansas like, people. Yeah, that moved came out in. here. And, Tw- and New Mexico, like 23 more minutes. Or so. yeah. Some of those people. I just remember these like crusty looking motherfuckers yeah. were rolling to town with totally. like, spikes. And yep. you're like, who's that guy? Totally. I remember the first time I, we played a show in one of my bands with Econocrist. I'm like, they showed up to like set up. And I was booking shows in Santa Rosa at the time. And I was like, these guys are fucking punk, man. Look at them. <laughs> you know, they were just like so punk, you know. And I don't even know if I had heard their music at that time. And, you know, Ben is such a, just a dry wit like he's so hard to read like but there was a lot of those guys that came out here and just like they found home you know and it was a it was a really interesting time in music for the bay area you know for sure the same time that that you guys came up i think the first time i saw jawbreaker was at the women's building with like sam i am you know and i bought uh i bought a seven inch from adam and i don't we kept in contact you know had you guys come up and play in santa rosa and you know it just uh, sort of progressed over the years, even even through the times of my bandmates hating you guys, so <laughs> doing mean things. But um, you, you I, guys I, know, right? You know, yeah. Okay, they know. Okay. They know. Adam likes know. to pretend okay. he doesn't know, so that okay. then he can ambush me on social media from time to time. I feel like we're 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 trying to be honest here. No, I, they know. Okay, yeah, yeah. Chris didn't know, but Chris, you know, um, Chris didn't care. No, Chris didn't <laughs> care Chris. at all. Now he wouldn't anymore. No, he doesn't care. Um, I do have to ask, just because Riot Fest came out, what was it like to 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 open those, like play those first few chords in front of like 
40 or 50,000 people. I mean, uh, you know, it was interesting. I was on the side of the stage waiting to go on. Um, well, prophets of rage were on the other, the stage directly adjacent. Yeah. And like they had, they were clearing the stage. And so, and I just had to be, I had to get my mind ready to do it. Right. And I was sitting with a bunch, it was very packed on the side of the stage. There were so many people up there. And, uh, I was standing, um, a few people down from my mom and she looked over at me kind of behind, she leaned her head back and looked at me and gave me the look like the Tibetan look of 1000 yards. It was kind of like, are you ready? Because you're about to do something alone. Right. And no one's going to help you. I don't know those were her words, but that was the look. It was like... Is that comforting? It was totally comforting. Uh, uh, Because it kind of recognized, like, the gravity of the situation, but also that it was like, either way, you're going to be done in an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So I just kind of got on a level with her in in the gaze and, like you know, put my head down yeah. and did it. But then honestly, when we started, all I remember was just bright lights and like I, none of us became conscious till about four songs in. Oh, yeah. We were on autopilot until we knew that we were going to be fine. Yeah. And then it became really fun. Yeah. Oh, geez. But like from Boxcar to the fourth song, I was, we were just all trying to like hit our marks basically. and Just stay, stay in the song. Stay, yeah. Yeah. It was a real. It was it kind would, of discipline, like not stray too far from the mic. Right. Keep the chords okay. I, I mean, I can say one, having met your mom in person, she's incredibly. I mean, there's an intensity there that's you know that's rare. Like she engages. There's no. There's not a. There's not like a space. You know, like when she introduced herself to me, it was like, you know, this is I'm here. Like there's no doubt that she was there. You right. know? And that's that's a rarity among among you know our very very flawed race. Like she's a she's very present and obviously she's worked her whole life to do that. So it's 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 obvious. So yeah. I can imagine and that doesn't that, always work with people. Yeah. I mm. mean people can be put off by that if I, someone just does not break the stare when they meet them. They're like no. I'm actually I'm here now and I'm meeting you. Yeah. I, I found it to yeah. be comforting in a way. I mean, I think she's a really amazing human being. So. She's a real sweetheart. Yeah. I mean, she just loves people, so yeah. it's never an aggressive thing. No, not at all. But, but I it was, and it was powerful for that reason. I think because her and my dad were both there on the stage, yeah. and I had been gone through jail with them like a year before, mm-hmm. and and they mm-hmm. really showed up towards the end of my incarceration and like helped me get out and. They seemed really, you know, and they got so that must have been great deal. for you then for them to see you do this. Yeah, I think to like see the distance that I had come in that course of the year, and um, yeah, would have been unimaginable, you know. Well, I, where I, we were before, there was definitely some, you know, and I'm I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I having been there for that and the first two shows out here, um there was some definitely very intense and intimate moments that were noticeable to the people that were sort of on the outside of it as well. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, it was like me- meeting yeah. your, your, I met your sister as well. And you know, she was just, they just were just so happy for you, you know? And that's, I think that's the thing that's the most, um, um, kind of the thing that's really stuck with me about this 
thing that you guys are doing, as a, the three of you, it seems to me that everybody, that all three of you are really happy with this, what's going on right now, as are all of your family and close friends. They're happy for you guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's re- I got to say, it's really refreshing to see. Well, that sounds like, yeah, because you mentioned that the, you know, people were a little adversarial with you with Jets and, and, and then obviously Jawbreaker had some, some shit go down where people got a little weird about Jawbreaker. <laughs> this might be like the first time that it's just everyone's just on board. Yeah, it's a little odd, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm waiting. For, no, we're not waiting for the shoe to drop necessarily, <laughs> but but it, it, navigating happiness is can be really challenging. Uh, yeah, yeah, if yeah, you've yeah. Grew, grown up in opposition yeah. to to the world, you know, and yeah. well deserved. Yeah. I mean, you guys have all faced your own adversity. We talked to Chris a lot about his in in the in the interview we did with him, and you know, I, I think that people deserve a, to give themselves and to get a little bit of a break. You know, fuck, man. It's it's hard to find happiness. It really is. And there's so much discord right now. Part of the reason Joshua and I are doing this podcast is to share positive stories and, like, of people being happy and finding things they love to do, you know, because we feel like there's enough negativity in the world. Yeah, it ties right into Riot Fest, uh, just this depression, just this, like, total depression over the administration, over the country, not even just every fucking thing right now. And, um, for me, I was, I was just, I was going, I was getting real dark, uh, and hopeless about things. And, you know, one little thing that helped was seeing, oh shit, Jawbreaker's back now, like now, like that's one of a few things that have happened that have been cool since then. But like, it it gave people a chance to go be happy and like hang out at a festival or at a show in San Francisco and see people they hadn't seen in years and connect in real life. You know, people that don't go out anymore and don't, you know, don't see each other and, and have like a moment of, of just genuine, like happiness. I remember seeing Jawbreaker, it must've been, I don't know, we get here in January. Uh, I don't know. It was in the city last time you were here. Mm -hmm. I took my wife and she had never seen you guys, but we were up in the balcony looking down and it was just like, everyone was so fucking happy. Like it's rare to see a show, everyone that happy. Um, so it just seemed like good timing. How's that for you? It couldn't have happened at a better time Yeah, for us, for each of us personally, I think, especially Adam and I, uh, where we were at in our lives. Um, and I think Chris as well, it's yeah. like, you know, been, it's been really cool. Uh, and I think it, and I love that people have been so happy at these shows. I was going to say, as you're describing that moment, like I, what worries me now is that the idea of kind of doing creative work seems um, unthinkable sometimes, right? Oh. Because it's so draining to like stay on top of the the news, you know, and everyone feels a certain response. You engage as much as you can stand it. Yeah, I tend to go like head on. I I watch Democracy Now every morning, five yeah. days a week, which, which to me is is actually comforting because it's there's no gloss, there's no right, there's no deal making. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's their perspective, but I'm very, I'm very close to Amy Goodman in my heart. Okay, I, totally. She was with me on 9/11. Like I, she's a New York broadcaster and historian, and they're just a righteous outfit. Sure. And there's no news like that. No. Uh, from you know, that you no. get to see that often. But I think one, th- but when you do get like dosed with kind of this administration or this this kind of um, treacherous humanity that's 
<laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. They're, That's a pretty good description, Blake. It is an, you know, it's utterly um, draining. And, yeah. and the idea that you want to then, then do um, something poetic or, or beautiful or artistic is that much more challenging, which is what they want completely. Right. Yeah. Like they, you know, that's how this stuff works is like just to overwhelm you, put you on your back foot and then outrage you further. So you keep slide, you keep backpedaling. Fuck yeah. And so I'd make, you know, and it makes me lonely for like great art, great confrontational art. Right. Even like, because we could all use that. So I feel really fortunate that we get to pl- playing the physicality of playing, even if there are old songs. Yeah, having not had that um, vehicle for so long was like plugging in and getting physical with a guitar. Yeah, it's been great. And I I asked that we would do that song Parabola just for that reason because like, right. that's all I just wanted to play that song as hard as we could in practice. Oh. And Chris was like, I don't think my fingers can do it. And I was like, Chris, I need this from you. Like, I psychically need this. Yeah. So, you know. Well, I I think it, you know, the, you have slipped in some pretty good digs and political commentary at different times during sets, though. So, to be fair, like, it it didn't escape me and a lot of other people, the shirt you wore at Riot Fest, nor Chris's shirt. So, you know, I mean, definitely there's a, there's a sort of the time is now, um, and I think that the thing that's most interesting is even after all these years and, and, you know, I can speak to this only as like somebody that's watched a lot of music as well. And as a fan and as, you know, somebody that's been friends with Adam a long time, there's an urgency still to it, which is kind of amazing. Like these, some of these songs are, you know, what, 30 years old and there's still an urgency at times to it. And I'm not talking about the kind where you're like panicked, but like, come on, come enjoy yourself and hear this now, you know? And I, I think that that like speaks to the way that, that, um, that you guys are getting along in a way and where you are in your lives. Hmm. You know, it's a very different space, you know, and the urgency isn't the urgency of youth. Like you have to come hear me. It's more like, you know, you should really listen to this right now. You know, it's, it just feels more, um, grounded, I guess. Yeah. Definitely sounds tight as fuck like it sounds like <laughs> you guys are sounding pretty good uh but you mentioned uh creatively that that's hard uh it's hard to be creative right now um is that a, do you i was gonna say if if any of that is like like maybe you need the adversarial thing though maybe you need to put stuff out and have it be contentious and have it be like i don't know if this is what i wanted from new jawbreaker or whatever band you're doing uh yeah, well, there's definitely a punk thing that that I kind of thrive on, and but this is a good this is good for the show actually. How to do that as an adult is a different matter right? mm. because Jawbreaker historically would hit our stride at the worst moment on a tour where we would push through, and I'm sure this is true of many bands. Just when you think you're like about to like go home, mm-hmm. right? You suddenly begin to just glide like mm-hmm. this machine. I, I, it happens in every, any band I've been in on tour. It's a tour thing, but you would suddenly, and it was usually in the Midwest somewhere, somewhere where it didn't matter, <laughs> right. like, you know, in terms yeah. of markets and stuff. <laughs> yeah. you, like, and honestly, on it, like usually around Cleveland, yeah. like where it does kind of matter because it's rock and roll. Right. right. But like we would hit this stride of like four or five shows. It was just grease lightning. You're like, I can't miss a note, even if I try. 
Right. You would just be your best band right then. Locked in. Totally locked in. Yeah. And um, and that was kind of that triumph in adversity moment. Okay. That like the conflict it became so laughably outrageous that you would just you know <laughs> revel in it <laughs> and like fuck it. Yeah. 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 And well, and so that and I want that to happen, but I don't want to do it as a grown up now. Right. Because part of that involved wrecking myself. Well, right. maybe the wrecking already happened, and you guys just get to keep gliding. You know. I mean, it feels uh, well, like there some, was some... We got we to get some songs going here. That's oh, the there problem. There was some rough shit between the three of you guys, though. No no joke, personally. And I'm not talking about as a, as a group of three people in a band together. I mean, just, you know, you know. and again, I'm, I'm in constant contact with Adam, mostly because of business stuff, because of the merchandise. But, I mean, shit, there was so much going on, you know. And maybe you guys get to keep moving on that plane in terms of live. And, you know, who knows? Maybe you get to have a little conflict in the studio and figure out something new you know are you, are you wishing that they it out fight there. in the no. studio <laughs> no way man no yeah, way you know, man i'm enjoying watching them get along actually i think it re- i think uh, yeah good work rarely grew out of us not liking each yeah. other yeah, right. yeah right. it was more of us collect uniting against yeah, yeah. fate you know exactly but for you so a lot of people who I don't know how much of this has to do with not drinking, but a lot of people quit drinking and are, and are creative associate that whatever your way of going into oblivion is like that as part of the process. And then you come out with this, this art or this thing is, is that what you're saying that you have this fear that like, how do you, how do you do this without, without, uh, without kind of like burning it down? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a big question for, it's still a question for me. Yeah. Certainly when I would smoke weed, yeah. my painting was out of control. I could paint for days. And I'm yeah. I'm I get manic. Like I'm a bipolar yeah. personality. Yeah. So like when you when both those things would be firing, yeah. This is why people fall in love with their illness. That's the juice. Or like, right. you know, is it worth it to ride out the depression to get that that manic cycle cuz it's so beautiful and electrifying. So I totally yeah. have that question. Like, I don't know if I'll ever be at that place where the world is like re- resting psychedelic. Right. <laughs> like it's right. just it's right. that way for days on end, yeah. and I'm just it's pouring out. You know, I will miss that. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and I have yet to achieve a kind of creative cycle like that, but. I don't know. That's sit with how, it. Yeah, that's how I'm going to have to do yeah, it. Yeah, like we'll like, see. Like just sit with it. Like fuck. I mean, brave new world. Yeah. I know a lot of people who say like you wouldn't believe how good your music gets when you when you become sober. Right. Like you straighten. Tom Waits said it was it's like different. the hose was just a little like cramped up for a while, and then the hose kind of uncramped. Yeah, that's what Tom Waits said. <laughs> Love Tom Waits. <laughs> when he quit drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. Any final questions from you? Nope. Blake, you have anything else you want to? We hit, I think you guys we hit on a great range of topics. We today. did, yeah. So yeah. I'm going to say that I am not disappointed in you, Kevin. I, I, <laughs> this is more than I expected from you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm <laughs> to glad. invert this, the old phrase. This is the first in a while. I, Joshua doesn't know this story, but I get I, I've gotten some um, people upset with me. Well, you know that people get upset with me on Facebook. You're well aware. Of yeah, that. he loves fucking fighting Nazis on Facebook. Yeah. So I see that. I hate it. So I, hate I it. got uh, maybe like a year ago, somebody posted or 
eight months ago. I don't know when it was. It doesn't matter. He said that he was, um, he expected more from me than a very, very, it was a little explicit. I'll, I'll admit that. And so that's been taken and used as a constant joke since. So I'm glad that you, I met and exceeded That's a good friend. That he was, uh, no, it was not. You, you, no, I expect more from you. That's a good friend. But he expected more from me in the direction that I would not probably go with yeah. the more. So. I think I can ex- I can say then that I expect I expect less from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, yeah, Blake. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, and this has been really fun to talk. Uh, you guys have a few things going on. We we're not yeah. huge like pluggers of things, but um, when people actually have creative things happening, you have three shows this week in San Francisco. Um, it's going to uh, air way after that. Uh, that's true. But yeah. and then and then Chicago though it won't air after Chicago. There you go. So um, there's a Chicago date coming up with a band that I love. Um, playing with Naked Ray Gun, which is awesome. Big, big influence on us. Yeah, I think big influence Growing up, on a lot. In fact, I can, they probably know their songs we just inadvertently stole. Yeah, Blake. Unconsciously. We didn't ask you what your influences were. We <laughs> almost go. made it. Yeah. Well, he, he just he just laid it out. We, this got brought up last night during the Q&A, so it's, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, Oh yeah, go see the movie. Yeah, go see the movie. If you're wondering why see we see the didn't... movie, I mean, all I would promote is co- come see the band sometime. Yeah, not anywhere specific, but we're going to keep playing. So yeah. come, people should come come see, see us live. It's a different thing. And there's there's a small group of us, and I say small right now because I'm going to build some campaign around this somehow that think Blake should be writing um, travel guides um, with his um, wit and interesting uh, facts and pointing out his feelings about certain areas. Uh, as of as of yesterday on Facebook, that's been an agreement between me and a few other people. So um, hopefully we'll see some writing at some point, too. Like Andrew McCarthy. Exactly. Tra- you know, he's a travel writer now. I did not know that. And he's never looked better. Really? Yeah. Now I'm going to have to look it up. The actor. Yeah, I yeah. know who he is, for sure. Yeah, he's uh, like a very accomplished uh, travel writer. Traveler. I so Let's no just idea. say like Rollins, like a traveler. Yeah. And then makes his work around his travel. Yeah, I think I would love to do that. I'm ready to see. I'm off probation. I'm ready to see the world. <laughs> yeah, I'm either going to join the navy or, or do this. There's always the Merchant Marines, <laughs> right? Be a swabby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. We really, I mean, it was. It's been great. So, and thanks for listening, everybody.